south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 232, covering the week of September 14th through September 25th, 2020. So this is a two-week episode. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition by 20 Southerners. It's a great book. You get it free of charge. You can also get that book at Amazon if you would like, if you wanted a hard, hard copy of it. But you, of course, can get it free of charge just for giving us an email. And we'll get you an email Monday through Friday or Tuesday through Saturday, our Daily Dose of Dixie. It's a great way to keep up with what the Institute is doing. You can also support the Institute by clicking on that support tab while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can click on that donor options. And of course, you can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. So if you like what we're doing, if you like our podcast, our website, all the things that we're doing, conferences, then consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. It does help us keep everything going. We exist on your generous contributions alone. You can also support the Institute by clicking on that Shop tab. You can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's high-quality embroidered stuff, and of course, it has the logo on it, and you can advertise the Institute that way. So a couple of ways to support the Institute off of that page. Also, please share our material on social media. Rate this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Do all the things you can do to help us spread the message. We do have one of our projects almost completed, coming to fruition probably within the next few days. So we're really excited about that. And we will be sending out emails for support on that. Also, we have our conference coming up in the middle of October uh, in, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. So time is running out to get in bo- on board with that. Make sure you click on that You're Invited section on our webpage, and you can go on out to our conference on Who Owns America. It's going to be a great conference. Really looking forward to you all being there. Okay, well, let's talk about the two weeks at the Abbeville Institute. Hurricane Sally knocked out my technical... Uh, I had some technical problems with that, and it made it to where I couldn't do a podcast. I got behind last week. So uh, we're back. I've got to do a couple of weeks this week. So it's going to be same time frame, but we're going to talk about more stuff, which is actually good because it all works together. I mean, look, everything we do works together. But last week, we had a general theme of treason and secession. And this week, it was agrarianism. If you'll notice, this is kind of how we, we structured the, the material for the week. But all these things work together because you cannot have independence without independent people. And I think that's an important thing to remember about the 1860s or the 1770s. You had Americans who were fairly independent. And why were they independent? Well, it was land. Uh, When you have a mass of people, wherever you are, whether it's in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, Africa, wherever it is, and you have a mass of people that are primarily urban, you don't have independent people because you can't survive on a very small amount of land. You're going to have to have the industrial complex supporting you in some way, whether it's supporting you by uh, providing roads and other things, or if it's uh, supporting you with food. I mean, look, the pandemic, the so-called pandemic that we've gone through these last several months, I mean, look, since I mean, we're at six months now, really, uh, has shown that the food supply and other things are tenuous. 
I mean, look, when this thing first started, you couldn't get some paper products. You couldn't get some food products because people were going out and buying all kinds of stuff because they thought they weren't going to be able to get them. Things were going to shut down. And so your grocery stores were essentially out of food. It's come back, but it's taken a while. And still, some things are hard to get. If you want to go out and get any durable goods, well, I mean, manufacturing is backed up so far that it takes forever to get durable goods, furniture, appliances, things like that. So it shows you the strain that something like a pandemic can place on a society. But if you're independent, you don't, you don't have those issues. And of course, the other thing, uh, you know, a lot of people were given uh, a clearance on their mortgages because uh, you know, there was some, some concessions made, so people weren't having to pay their mortgages. I think that's still going on to, ex to an extent at this point. Uh, but that's all going to start coming due. And uh, the fact is, when that happens, you know, you're going to see a, a leveraged society have some real financial difficulties. So uh, we're going to see what's going to happen, but that is the outcome of Hamilton's America. You have people that don't live on their own land, that can't s support themselves, and that are leveraged to a point where they are in real financial trouble if, uh, if there's an economic downturn and, say, their, their job is in jeopardy. So when you look at the 1860s and you look at the 1770s, you look at people that certainly some had you know, large amounts of debt. I mean, you look at Southern planters, just focusing on the South, a lot of these people did have debt. But on the other hand, you had a lot of independent farmers as well who did not have debt and were doing fairly well. And so if there was an economic disruption, which of course the war created that in the South, the war in 1775 to, to 1783 created it throughout the United States, that economic dislocation that you have. Uh, you have to have some level of independence to do it. And that's why I really liked the pieces for this last week. You know, Travis Holt had a, just a fantastic piece, 30 pieces of silver. You know, what is land worth? And he talks about the loss of land in the, in the Ozarks, in the Arkansas area, and what's that meant, and what that's meant for, for uh, people in his family and people in his community. And how hard it's been. And you know, you started with these larger homesteads and you've whittled down. I remember I was talking to uh, Don Livingston not long ago, and he said, you know, back in the in the 40s and 50s, he remembers uh, when he would go to a family member and they had all this land and they had this nice house and how little they actually paid for that. You couldn't get that now for the amount of money that these people paid for it several years ago. And a lot of that's because of finance capital. I mean, we know that the financial structure forces people into long-term mortgages with high, I mean, even if the interest rates are low, but you got to pay these exorbitant fees and other things. I mean, this is all to prop up the structure. And this is what Southerners were very critical of through much of the 19th and 20th century in opposition to Hamilton's bank. And then when you get forward in time, you get to the 20th century, Southerners were particularly critical of the New England-dominated financial system because they said it placed undue burdens on the South. That's part of who owns America. Uh, it's part of the critique of the Hamiltonian system that you're going to see at that conference. And so, I mean, this is something that you know, we really need to start thinking about. And you go back and you read what Southerners are saying in the 20th century. And um, I'll just say, you know, in, in my McClanahan Academy, if you, if you don't follow me there at my McClanahan Academy, uh, I've got um, a Southern Cultural and Intellectual History series of courses, and the third part is coming out soon, and it's focusing on this early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century period. And you find in that, that critique, that, that strain of Jeffersonian thought that goes all the way up through 
the 1930s into the 40s. And then you find it in other people today. When we get to part four, we're going to focus on you know modern Southerners. You say the exact same things. But certainly the South and that Southern tradition has always offered the counterweight to industrial capitalism, uh, to finance the fusion of government and finance capitalism, to uh, the commercial society that we're living in today. It always, it always offered that. So that's the, the valuable part of the Southern tradition. We get, you know, well, you're going to support the Southern tradition. Well, that's all about race. Well, we know it's not. I mean, look, we know that's not the case. Uh, it certainly became a major conversation in the 18th, 19th, 20th century as people started talking about what America was and where it would go. But that's not the Southern tradition. The tradition is not based on that. The tradition is based on other things. And Southerners, black or white, were involved in this. I mean, look, after the war was over, there were a large number of black Southern property owners who were facing the exact same struggles as white Southern property owners. In fact, there's a very famous speech that Tom Watson, who eventually became an ardent, you know, segregationist, white supremacist, because he thought that's how he's going to win elections. But uh, when you when you look at his early speeches, like you know, in the 1890s, he's making speeches where he he says the same thing. Essentially, he believes in the superiority of one race over the other, but he says all Southerners are suffering under this Hamiltonian financial capital system, white and black. We think he thought you know, black Southerners should have equal access to the same rights as citizens as white Southerners. I mean, this was something that he talked about. So you had this, um, this, this perception of the South. It's simply just not there. Uh, and that's because you get a cartoonish view of Southern history in even most establishment history courses. Now, I mean, look, the the, the, the uh, people like Sean Valence and Eric Foner, they know better. They know better. But yet they want to give you a perspective of the South that simply demonizes it because that makes their position stronger when they're in public. But I mean, they know these other things. They know these other things exist. So let's talk about this idea of secessionist treason. We had a, a wonderful piece. Let me, let me mention this particular piece. Was Secession Treason by Earl Starbuck? Now, Earl Starbuck has, uh, he has a master's degree in history from Liberty University. He's not a professional historian. Uh, he's not someone that um, goes out and makes a living doing history. But this particular piece is, more, is a more concise uh, analysis of why secession was not treason than most things you're going to find anywhere else. I mean, these are things we've talked about before many times on this particular podcast. And, uh, you know, he does cite people that we talk about quite a bit, uh, including yours truly. But the fact is, this is what the Abbeville Institute can help do. You have a young man, he's in his 20s, these are the people that are the future, I mean, of, of the United States. These are people that are the future of your communities. And he's saying, here's the issue. Secession is not treason. Uh, you can't call these Southerners traitors. And he outlines why, in a very legal way, that secession was not treason. And it's, it's wonderful. And he gives you quote after quote from members of the founding generation uh, that get into this idea that secession was not treason. James Madison, Edmund Pendleton, St. George Tucker, George Nicholas, Samuel Johnston, Henry Lee, Oliver Ellsworth, uh, Tom Paine, George Mason, Hamilton himself. I mean, there's, 
there's all kinds of examples from the founding generation where found, and you could go on with this, where you can find people saying secession is not treason or that independence was certainly possible under the Constitution. And the first people to try it, as Southerners pointed out consistently, were Northerners, who then were saying just you know, 80 years later that secession is treason or 60 years later that secession is treason or in some cases 30 years or less than 20 years later secession is treason when they all wanted to do it themselves. This is the sad part of our entire dialogue because most people just believe in platitudes and slogans. So if you haven't read this piece by Earl Starbuck, it's really good. And of course, within that week, we also had Phil Lee with They Were Not Traitors. Um, one of the things that he does, of course, that I think is good in this particular piece, he mentions these New England secessionists. And he also says, you know, look, the, the southern states were not trying to overthrow the government of the United States. They just wanted to form a government of their own. And that's an important point to make. When Lincoln stands up and says, we want government of the people, by the people, for the people, well, what people? Are you saying that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, the, the southerners don't matter in that? And if they want to have their own, if they want to have exercise self-determination, which was the bedrock of the American political tradition, the American political tradition, self-determination. Well, why should they not be allowed to do it? Well, of course we know why. Because Lincoln was concerned about the financial well-being of the United States. That's why he invaded the South to keep the Union together. It wasn't to free any slaves. Slavery became a way to make the war a moral crusade later on. But we know that Lincoln was forcing the war to keep the Union together so that he could keep his financial system in place, the Hamiltonian financial system. We know that was the case. We know that Lincoln was afraid of a free trade South on the doorsteps of the North because that could crush the industrial capital, industrial capital system of the United States. It can, could crush the financial sector of the United States. So, I mean, this was... A major problem for the Lincoln administration, which is why you had to invade the South. There's, there's no other reason for it. We know because he said, we're going to save the Union. If I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would. If I could save the Union by freeing no slaves, I would. If I could save the Union by freeing one slave, I would. Whatever. He was more worried about saving the Union than anything else. That was his paramount objective. So here you have a situation where... Uh, the, the way that the, the, often this thing is debated, it's just so stupid. And, of course, people will point out, well, if it wasn't for slavery, these southern states wouldn't have seceded. Well, you could, you could make a case that the Deep South was concerned about the institution of slavery, of course. I mean, they said as much. They were concerned about it. They were more concerned about the extension of slavery, which was pointed out in these secession debates as they were debating secession. Hey, look, if we leave, we're giving up all of our access to the Western Territory. Uh, we might put slavery on the path to extension just by leaving. So what are we going to do? Why don't we just stay in the Union? It would be better. I mean, there were Georgians, very powerful Georgians, that made this argument. If that's what we're really concerned about. And, of course, when you look at some of the other documents, uh, you know, Robert Toombs had a very famous speech. Uh, the, what you know, is often what we called on the website the real cornerstone speech. He made a very famous speech in November of 1860 where he points out all the things that have led to this. And he does even mention 
slavery as a, as a major issue. But most of the time, this was brought up in, in, co in the context of the extension of the institution, not the moral or economic viability of the institution. There were certainly Northerners who were against slavery for moral terms, just like you could even find some Southerners that argued that way. But for the most part, this became a political issue, as Michael Holtis, Holtis pointed out expertly in his Political Crisis of the 1850s. Great book. Uh, if you're not a, a historian, it is a little hard to get through at times, but it is a very good book because it lays out how this became a political issue first and foremost, not a moral issue. It was a political issue because it was all about power. And we know that was the case in the early 19th century. We know that when the Missouri issue came up in 1819, it was about power. You had uh, Northern Federalists pointing this out. This is a way to keep the party together. This is a way to, to resurrect this kind of Federalist coalition in the North. If we just go ahead and do this, we, if we take this issue and make it an issue, because they knew they could split the West and the South because Westerners weren't really interested in the institution. Uh, you had uh, free states there already, even though Illinois debated and Indiana debated having slavery. But most of the Midwest was not in line with having slavery. So you could make it an issue and, of course, start uh, you know, cleaving off these southern states and make them isolated in this union. You could make them the political minority, which New England knew they were the political minority, which is why they opposed the Louisiana Purchase and uh, you know, it's why they, why they didn't want to bring any states into the Union because they knew that it was going to crush their vision of political economy. And this is all about that. This is why people, I mean, if you just look at the entirety of American history, it doesn't make any sense why you would think otherwise. This issue became rhetorical as a symbol of power in the government. This is why the whole word, you know, the whole phrase slave power was used. What's the second part of that? Power. Because Northerners understood that they would be in a minority if the South continued to dominate the government, which they did for decades, decades. And once the South is gone, they get what they want. So anyways, I like the fact that, uh, you know, Phil brings up these things uh, in this particular piece. And we have this great piece by Earl Starbuck. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, and this is why, you know, Southerners, and you look at that idea of self-determination. We had a wonderful piece by Duncan Killen. Uh, he's an attorney in North Carolina, uh, entitled The Land Without Heroes. Uh, and if we don't have people like Lee or people like Jackson, who universally were recognized by Northerners as well as Southerners as being great men. I mean, look, I always point back to E.L. Godkin, who was kind of a libertarian conservative back in this period of time, ardent unionist. I mean, he wanted the South punished. He wanted to win the war. He was certainly in favor of the war. But when Jackson died in 1863, he wrote that Jackson would be remembered not as a Southerner, but as an American. He was a great man. And this is what the problem with all of this is. These are great men And you need heroes. As he says in this piece, the South needs its heroes, this generation of men who nobly served and often died for their homes. There is little example today of such dedication and support of any cause. Indeed, every generation, every creed and color should erect monuments to its heroes. In a time of declining community cohesiveness and social dissolution, every community needs examples of the virtues it should endeavor to reflect. Now, the, the uh, SJWs would say, oh, but these people just were reflecting racism. 
Well, that's not, I mean, look, Booker T. Washington said we need more monuments to the best men of the South, and those would be Confederate men because that's who the best men of the South were. The best men of the South went out and fought. But you see, it's not just the left that gets involved in this, and we had to piece in tearing down these things. We had a piece by Carol uh, Haynes, Marxist Conservatives and Neocons, which part of the real problem with, with the way American history is taught, and we had Trump stand up and say, we're going to have this new education, we're going to have this new directive in the Edu Department of Education led by Alan Gelzo, who is a notorious anti-Southern historian. I mean, look, he really despises the South. He thinks everything they did was wrong. So if that's who's directing your, your education from the top down, which is why top-down government doesn't work, which is why you know we, we've talked about that here, and Southerners talked about it nonstop. If that's going to be the case, well, then what are you going to get? You're going to get the same thing you would get from people like Jason Whitlock, who this points out a sports announcer. You turn on sports now, and it's all about you know whatever the social issue crusade of the day is. It's just ridiculous. This is why people are tuning out professional sports and others. I mean, these people don't get it. Nobody wants to hear their nonsense. When you turn on the television to watch sports, you want to hear about football. You want to hear about baseball. You want to hear about basketball. You want to hear about you know, the games and what's going on. All of this started back in the 90s. And I point back, you know, ESPN used to be on my television all the time. And this all started with people like Keith Olbermann who was a very popular sportscaster on ESPN. He and, uh, and um, Dan Patrick. It was old Patrick and Olbermann. They were the two big names in, uh, in ESPN. And then you eventually had Stuart Scott. And so this started then. There was kind of a, you know, a push to the left as people became more outspoken in their beliefs on air. And, oh, we, we, should, we should respect this. I mean, these, they're, they're standing up for what they believe. These, but people didn't tune in for that. And I think, I mean, ESPN is losing. The only way ESPN is staying afloat right now is because of Disney. Because people want to go out and purchase the, uh, the Disney uh, streaming service. And so that's how ESPN is staying afloat. Otherwise, because people are cutting the cord to cable and other things, ESPN would just simply go away. And people don't want to tune in to their NFL game and hear social political commentary. They don't want to turn on and uh, the, the television f before an NBA game and see you know, all the political stuff that's going on before the game. They just don't want to do it. It's, they do these things to escape that stuff because they know it's all around them and they don't need it thrown in their face. Now, as I've mentioned in my own podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show, no one's saying these, these athletes, commentators can't have these things going on in their own time. If a professional athlete wants to go out and talk about politics when he's not playing a game, not before the game, not after the I mean, certainly after the game, but not right after the game, you want to go out into your own social media account and say things that you want to say, no one's saying you can't. But when you mix the two together, people tune out. The NFL is in serious decline right now because people don't want to see it. They know these people are paid millions of dollars, and what they're going to do is cut out the financial backing of a bunch of people that simply uh, they, don't, they don't agree with. That is where Americans are making their money walk, their money talk and their, and the, their money walk away from these things as well. So, um, you know, this is where the left and the right are taking down these heroes, people like Lee and Jackson and others. I mean, it's, we've had attacks on Washington, Jefferson, it doesn't matter. Anybody that has some type of despicable part of their past, according to 
modern sensibilities is going to be attacked. And so you have to have that independence. This is the 30 pieces of silver. This is what we're looking at. This is how you create these things. You know, we had a, a piece on Friday by uh, Dabney, Industrial Combinations, which is a long piece, but getting into the corporate system, the corporate structure, and how dangerous it was back in the 19th century, Dabney was pointed out. 1868, he's already pointing out that corporate combinations are going to be disastrous for the common American, Southerner in particular. But this is the Hamiltonian system. And we know that after the war was over, this is what was foisted on the entire United States. And so you have people like, uh, you know, Wendell Berry. We had a great piece by Casey Chalk this week, one of our newer writers uh, on Jaber Crow, which is, it's a novel. But uh, he talks about uh, how uh, we're losing something. We're losing that small. And this is one thing that Wendell Berry does so well. And Wendell Berry, of course, is in many ways uh, a politically a leftist. I mean, he is. But this is where you know, the, the Southerner in him is more important. This is what we've said about Jimmy Carter and others. It's that Southern part that people just don't get. They don't get that part of it. They don't understand it. They think it's just leftism. Because they, they, they deal in the ideological. They deal in the world of RD, left-right. It's deeper than that. As Ch Casey Chalk says, the Kentucky Bar describes with incomparable affection a Southern way of life that was normative only two generations ago. But one that most millennials, to their impoverishment, would likely interpret as just being as foreign as the Civil War or colonial, colonial area, era. Excuse me. The young don't come to the river anymore, even to fish or swim, notes Jaber. You don't often run into them hunting in the woods. Mainly, they don't go where they can't drive. And this is true. I mean, we're, we're losing that attachment to grounding. It's, there's this, there's this uh, now movement. You go out and you take your shoes off and you put your toes in the dirt. They call it grounding now. Well, for years, you didn't have to ground. You just walked outside. Uh and Chalk continues, the Great Depression, two world wars, Korea and Vietnam were hard on communities like Port William, which suffered not only poverty, but the loss of many of the best men. Those who remained or survived were understandably eager for better times, no matter what was selling them or what the hidden cost might be. Quote, after the Depression and the war and the years of work that they were now beginning to think of as slow and too hard, the country people were trying to get away from demanding circumstances. But in trying to flee small town life, what did they give up? Couldn't quite see it at the time or didn't want to know that it was the demanding circumstances that had kept us together. Chalk says what they gave up was themselves. Of course, he's from Northern Virginia, which, uh, you know, that's where I was born. And you look around that area and what it's turning into. Uh, and he's he and I, you know, are from the same area in Northern Virginia. A few years, several years apart in age, but... Uh, I, he, he talks about, you know, the things that he saw there, and it's just, it's all gone. That part of Virginia is no longer Virginia. And when you look at the piece that we published, Henry Miller's Air-Conditioned Nightmare, now Miller is a controversial writer because he's, he's vulgar. In fact, his books were banned at one point in the United States. But he's very critical of the North. And this piece by Mike Goodlow, uh, he says, Miller had quite a lot to say about the South in this book, 
which is the air-conditioned nightmare, and also about the North and American culture in general. He goes to Boston, he talks about how awful it is. He goes to, to New York and talks about how awful it is. He goes to Pittsburgh, which he talks about how awful it was. Miller was very critical of the automobile. Miller says, the automobile stands out in my mind as a very symbol of falsity and illusion. There, are, there they are, thousands upon thousands of them, in such profusion that it would seem as if no man were too poor to own one. Europe, Asia, Africa, the toiling masses of humanity look with watery eyes towards these, this paradise where the worker rises to work in his own car. What a, what a magnificent world of opportunity it must be, they think to themselves. They never ask what one must do to have this great boon. They don't realize that when the American worker steps out of his shining tin chariot, he delivers himself body and soul to the most stultifying labor a man can perform. They have no idea that it is possible, even when one works under the best possible conditions, to forfeit all rights as a human being. They see the glitter and paint, the baubles, the gadgets, the luxuries. They don't see the bitterness in the heart, the skepticism, the cynicism, the, cynicism, the emptiness, the sterility, the despair, the hopelessness, which is eating up the American worker. Um, this is, and then he says this about the South. He says, the Southland is a vast domain about which one could go on writing forever. The Old South is full of battlefields. That is one of the first things which impresses you. The South has never recovered from the defeat which it suffered at the hands of the North. The defeat was only a military defeat that one feels very strongly. The Southerner has a different rhythm, a different attitude towards life. Nothing will convince him that he was in the wrong. At bottom, he has a supreme contempt for the man of the North. He has his own set of idols, warriors, statesmen, man of letters, whose fame and glory no defeat has ever dimmed. The South remains solidly against the North in everything. It wages a hopeless fight, very much like that of the Irish against England. Now, I wish that were still true, but of course we're seeing it's not as things come down and the South has basically laid over prostrate. I mean, the Abbeville Institute should have millions and millions of supporters. And what we're trying to do here, if the South had not just become another section, another gentler version of the North, which is what the neoconservatives always wanted it to be. People like Victor Davis Hanson and others. They didn't want that uniqueness of the South. They wanted it to be just like the North. That's the problem. So I really loved all this stuff this week, and you get into these nuances of everything, and uh, I thought it was just a fantastic couple of weeks, I should say. And uh, we're back at it. We're going to be back at it for here, from here on out, but Hope you enjoyed this week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Mm -hmm.